Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the message that we heard. And that we are reminded we are the handiwork of you. Help us to think of that in everything that we say and do. We thank you for the rain. We thank you for the joy of coming together and being with our family and, and fellow Christians. We ask that you be with us today and bless Dean and uh, open our eyes and, and bless this time to let us see you clearer. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, Tim. Um, it's good to be back with you. Uh, again, I celebrate uh, Will's incredible giftedness uh, last week. I got to, uh, uh, to jump online and uh, experience that from that side of things. And so I appreciate even more uh, Keith and Wade and others that uh, um, run the mic around for folks. Uh, I, I want to put this bug in your ear. Um, Keith uh, Crow reminded me of this uh, that we were talking about, um, and I, I need to talk to our COVID folks about this. I, I'm wondering if it's a time for us to be able to go back up in our room. And, uh, and so you don't have to answer me now, but if that is an issue or problem, if it still feels safer to be here, I don't mind doing that at all. Um, but if, uh, if we're able to do that, I think the, it still follows the guidelines and all that to, to maybe be able to go up there and spread out there, and then we wouldn't have to run a mic around. So um, I, I'm open to that. I feel like it might be getting close to that time, but uh, I'm, I'm looking for direction and wisdom both from you and the collective wisdom of the class, but also our, our shepherds and, and COVID folks that are talking about that. But. <laughs> yes, we, George said we'll, we'll come as long as you make coffee. We, it, I do think it's important maybe hopefully eventually to get our coffee spots back, don't you think? I think that's important. Um, I, that was half of our attendance of class, wasn't it? That the, the coffee spot was right outside the door. I, I like that. George, see, George is always thinking big picture. I love it. So last Thursday, I was, I was, uh, I was sitting in the house, and it was, um, we, we had just gotten back. For, I finally got to see uh, our family after a, a year and a half. Man, it was so powerful. And we got back, and then immediately Melanie and Luke went to camp. So it was David and I at home, and David was working on Thursday night, and I popped on the TV, and the uh, K-Love uh, Christian Music Awards were on. And it was one of those moments, I don't even have these times where I just needed to worship, but it was so cool, like nobody else was there. I can't sing a lick, so it was awesome that the house was empty. <laughs> so I literally picked up my guitar. I'm, again, I've told you I'm fumbling with, I'm horrible, a horrible singer, I'm horrible at guitar, but nobody was in, in the room so, or the house. So I, when a song came up on the TV, I pulled it up on my app, and I'm playing along. It was just, it was fun to me. And again, I hurt nobody. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. But this is the one that really touched me. Um, I, I suspect a lot of you, if you listen to Christian music, I'm sure you've heard this. Um, but I hadn't really paid attention to the words until I was playing it and, and looking at it. But uh, Matthew West, uh, one of the nominees for Song of the Year, was uh, a song called Let the Truth Be Told. Um, and uh, it, there's, I meant to print the whole thing out. Yeah. I want to read a couple lines from it because I think it's particularly powerful. It makes me appreciate this church too, by the way. But it fits in with where I'd like to go in this little mini-series. Uh, it goes like this. Lie number one, you're supposed to have it all together. And when they ask you how you're doing, just smile and tell them, never better. Lie number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours. So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors. Truth be told. The truth is rarely told now. I say I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. But I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not, and you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it. I'm being honest. 
is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall. There's no sin you don't already know, so let the truth be told. This was the line that grabbed me especially uh, in the world we find ourselves in today. He said there's a, he's obviously speaking of church, a lot of churches. There's a sign on the door that says, come as you are, but I doubt it. Because if we lived like it was true, every Sunday morning pew would be crowded. But didn't you say the church should look more like a hospital, a safe place for the sick, the sinner, and the scarred, and the prodigals like me? Wow. Um, it's a beautiful song. It's a incredible song. But I always like to think, why is that one of the number one songs in Christian music? What is it about that message? What is it that God is saying through the prophets of music to the people of God today? And I just love, I love that, that there is a sense in which there is a calling of God. I think this is always true. God continues to call us to actually live out and express what we say and we sing and we read, right? It is so easy to say things like, oh, there's the sign of the church, or come as you are, and yet we don't always live that out and express it. Again, this is, this is a church that's a, a, an exception to that. But man, it's never a time to get complacent about the gifts that God's given us. Does that make sense? And so I was just thinking about that. There, I think there is a longing and a calling outside of the walls of the church and growing inside of the walls of the church to say more and more can we live what we say we believe. And I was looking at some of the things just to, in uh, preparation for this message. There's a lot of studies that are going on at, of what Christian culture and Christian life is like that are saying a couple things that should be wake-up calls to us. One of them, you've probably heard a lot, maybe so much that, that if, if you are like me, I get numb to it. But numerically, in, in America right now, church has taken a hit. And it's not just COVID. It was happened before that. Church attendance has been declining for some years. And, of course, the one that you probably heard more and more about is that the nuns, those who check the box none for religion or whatever, is growing, like, exponentially almost over the last several years. And uh, in, in his book, Ronald Sider wrote a book called the, uh, the Scandal of the Christian Conscience. And one of the things he calls out here is this idea that increasingly people are asking the question, are you living what you profess to believe? And this is, this is what they say. The findings in numerous national polls are simply shocking. Gallup and Barna, you just fill in the blank, hand a survey after survey, demonstrating that Bible-believing Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, sexually moral, and greedy as the world in general. Now, again, I don't want to be gloom and doom here, but it is a, a prophetic wake-up call to say, it's wonderful to meet together and sing and pray and read the Bible, but are we living out as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus? Are we training each other as disciples to actually live out the story that we teach. By the way, I always say, we're saved by the grace of God. We're in there. Now, what do we do with that, right? So I, none of what I'm saying is guilt trip, oh, we're going to hell. It is now that we've been given the gospel of Jesus, that gospel is intended to disciple us and transform us, not just get us in the door, right? And what we're hearing from the prophets of music and those people, the bean counters behind closed doors that'll do gallop polls and all that kind of stuff, they're saying that Christians that are professing Christianity don't always look a whole lot different from the world around us. Uh, one of the examples that he wrote in his book just jumped off the page to me. This is any number of ones we could do, but maybe the city we find ourselves in. And hear me quickly again. This is not about um, white guilt or anything like that. It's none of that or rich guilt or whatever. But 
they did studies in the area of generosity. What does it look like with people that have money, and all of us, all of us have uh, more than most of the world does. Uh, what does it look like for people to profess and follow Jesus in terms of the way that they handle money? And there's a study in generosity that has gone for 50 years. They've been tracking things since 1968, over 50 years. Um, and in that time, Christians, Bible-believing Christians' income has increased and their giving has decreased. Like, it's just one, one picture of singing. Like, like I, I want to change the words of the lyrics of the song, let the truth be told to let the truth be lived, right? So, th- again, this is just a couple things to throw out there, and I'll tell you the one that just, and I, numbers can, can put you to sleep, but the, uh, the part that jumped off the page of me. Um, back in 68, already back then, less than 6% of Christians tied. Now it's dropped to about 4%. 4% of followers of Jesus tithe. I'm not talking, by the way, about just giving to church. Certainly not talking about just keeping the lights on or paying preachers. I'm not going to talk about but But giving as a discipline and a, a discipleship thing. So here's, here's the st- stat that, that jumped off the page. And we'll, we'll get into the Bible study. They said if just Christians in the United States alone, we're not talking about anybody else, but if just Christians in the United States tithed, we would have an additional, are you ready for this number? billion to share the gospel and to care for those who are in need. Can I just say that again? If just Christians in America actually tithe, as has been the practice of the people of God throughout centuries, hear me, this is not guilt trip. I think about it as an opportunity. If just Christians did what followers of Jesus have been doing and, and followers of Yahweh have been doing for centuries, we would have $143 billion. And all it would take, and again, this is obviously an overstatement. We know there are complications to it, but $80 billion would give basic health care and education for all the poor of the world, and then we would still have another 60 to $70 billion left to share the gospel. Again, I'm not a numbers guy, but I'm like, wow. Can we hear the song again? Let the truth be lived. Hear me, not guilt trip opportunity. And I think throughout the Christian faith and the faith of Yahweh, we've seen God invite us to step up a little more into the very thing that we sing about and pray about and and preach and all of that. And that's one of the reasons why I love this tiny little book. I'm thinking, what what can we do as a little mini-series before we uh, we break up with the guys and ladies and I'm excited about the things that are going to be happening the rest of the summer. And I love this tiny little book in the New, De- New Testament. It often gets o- overlooked. Keith and I were talking about this too. He loves it, so I'm calling him out that I need to hear him teach it right here too. The book of Philemon, this tiny little book. It doesn't even have, you know, I, I write just because I can't stand to not have a colon when I write a Bible text. So I write Philemon chapter 1, but you don't have to say chapter 1 because there's only one chapter, right? So if you're ever like, what's Philemon 3? What's up with that? No, it's, it's the whole, it's one chapter. But here's what I love. I get the sense that Paul is writing Matthew West's song when he sends this letter to a man, possibly his wife, didn't realize this until I said just on, and a little small. When we hear of the church in Colossae, because this, I told you a couple weeks ago, this is the letter that was kind of in the back pocket when they're reading the book of Colossians. And I'm running my mouth too much. Anyway, um, 
What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, so the, the letter to the Colossians comes at the same time as this tiny little letter to Philemon. It's a personal letter. Most of the uh, writings in the New Testament are, are corporate and global. Although this one is also addressed to the church. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But I believe Paul is writing this to a, to a family and to a little church family. And again, don't, don't think of the Colossian church as this big mega church. It was more like a big life group. That's how big those churches were. It was like house church that he's sending this to. And they read this letter, and I feel like Paul is almost singing to them, let the truth of the gospel that you've heard your whole life be lived out in your everyday life circumstances. Let me say that again. He's saying, I want you to take this grand gospel thing and live it out in the circumstances uh, of the people of God. So quick um, uh, background of what's going on, and then we're going to read this. In fact, let's just go and read the first couple verses, and we'll start talking about that. If you're re- uh, opening your actual Bible, it's, it's easier to find on a phone because it, it gets stuck um, right after Titus and before Hebrews here. But Philemon, I want to read the first, we're going to focus the first seven verses. Um, thank you. Uh, and what, Wade, I don't know where Wade went. I'll give it back to you. Huh? You gone? All right, I'll just hand that to you. You can hand it off. You got it. Thank you, sir. So it says, Paul, the prisoner. Uh, <laughs> I don't have it memorized. Let's see. Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Aphia, our sister, or maybe translated our beloved, or the, the beloved, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, into the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us or fellowship with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So here, here's the background of it, and I'm going to read it again, and we'll open it up to what, what you hear. And again, it's smaller, so we're just zooming in. Maybe there's a word or phrase that grabs you. Um, but here's the picture I think of this. Some books of the of New Testament you'll get, there, there are these cosmic epic stories, like the book of Romans is the cosmic gospel of Jesus and how it relates to a lot of the things we talked about in this letter. We'll talk about what what uh, Brother Rick was preaching this morning too. But so the Romans is about this, the massive global cosmic picture of the redemption of the world in Jesus Christ and how that relates to Jew and Gentile coming together and God fulfilling his purpose for Israel and all of that huge epic stuff, right? And then we have this tiny little personal letter and it's in the Bible. Like Paul isn't writing to the Roman church, he's writing to this guy Philemon. Um, and to the little house church, a little small group that's in his place. And the reason is because there's a story that's going on. Let me just point out a couple things that have happened. You're going to learn the name Onesimus that will come up in the next section we'll study next week. But that's the background of this story. Philemon is a wealthy man, so he's the kind of guy that could be the host of the life group. He's the one that can have a big enough house that back then people could come. He could probably help feed them and all of that, Right? So again, don't think of this kind of thing. They had to have a, a life group kind of setting in order to even have church. So Philemon is the guy that's essentially the house church leader. 
but he was also a wealthy slave owner. And one of his slaves was a man named Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away. And in that culture, that is devastating to the order and structures of society and the economy, right? That's the way it was back then. Uh, not too terribly long even here. But that's what had happened. He had run away. And when he went away, he somehow came in contact with Paul. And Paul does what Paul does. He shares the gospel of Jesus. And so picture all the irony, and believe me, it's thick throughout the letter, that this guy who was a slave runs away and now is basically an escaped felon now who should be in jail, gets witnessed to by a guy who's in jail about the freedom that comes in Christ. Isn't that awesome? So here he is. He's experienced the glory and the wonder. And not only that, he's become a partner and a leader in Paul's ministry. All this happened while he's gone. And now he's saying, okay, I'm sending him back home. Can you imagine the church fight that is about to happen when Onesimus walks back in the room? Because all of a sudden they're going to say, what do we do? Again, picture all of the stuff that Rick just preached about. What do we do when the person who has committed a wrong, who is literally in their culture, stolen from another person whose actions are undercutting their, their structure of society, wants to walk back into the life group and eat the potluck dinner before we read the Bible passage? That's the background of this letter. And Paul will go on to do, I think, a masterful pastoral job about handling this situation. He will tell you in a moment, you know, next week, he could have gone one way and he goes a different way. We'll look into that more. But all of that to say, and now that I want to hear from you in this, Paul writes this letter to say, now in this really earthy, messy, crazy, everyday life situation, will the truth be lived, not just told, in this little tiny gospel church. So let me read it one more time, and you tell me what, what you see. Um, and and I, I know this sounds crazy, but it's a small book, so we're going to zero in. We're just going to be like laser instead of, you know, big picture. I just want to read the first three verses. This is like the, you know, dear Frank <laughs> part of the letter. But Paul never misses an opportunity to put the gospel in very subtle ways. So I'm going to read it you know, two times, just the first three verses. And you tell me, without knowing anything else, if all you have is these first three verses, what are you already learning about the kind of ways that Paul wants the truth of the gospel to come out in everyday life? Anything at all that you see. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Aphia, our sister, or the beloved, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. What, what word grabs it? But like, what is Paul doing here? Any thought that you've got. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you see here? Any hints of the gospel? Anything that just grabs you? You don't even have to know what it means. Like what, what, what jumps off the page to you? Paul's 
Paul puts himself on the same level as Onesimus. Yes, I didn't see that. Yeah. Paul's a prisoner of slave. Yes, isn't that great? Yes. Never miss this. If you want to have some fun, just go go look at the first verse, first or second verse of every one of Paul's letters. And he will describe himself differently in every situation based on the pastoral move he's about to make. Now, when he has to bring out the big theological guns, he is Paul the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Here, Paul, did you know this is the only letter of the New Testament, I think, where Paul says, I'm a prisoner. I'm the prisoner, uh, by the way, prisoner of whom? I'm not prisoner of the state of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So I'm locked up for the sake of the gospel, and I'm not worried about that power here. I'm worried about this one. By the way, you can already see what he's... Can you see how he's hinting where he wants Philemon eventually to go? Am I following the culture? Even as a prisoner, I'm not thinking of myself as subject to the laws and the culture and the whole vibe of what's going on in the world around me. I'm thinking of myself in the realm Paul's favorite realm in the world is in Christ. He said, I'm a prisoner in Christ. Thank you for that. So I love that. He's putting himself on the same level as the one he's sending back to them. He's coming from a place of humility. Again, we'll see next week. This is really powerful because he could have come at this a totally different way. He could play his apostle card. And he had every right to do it. But he doesn't do it. He says, I'm suffering here. For the sake of Jesus. And I can't help wonder if that's part of the hint. He's, you know, the Holy Spirit's leading him in every, every word that he writes, right? And so I picture him saying, what you'll see is Paul is going to be inviting Philemon to make a huge sacrifice in his own life. So maybe Paul is just kind of reminding him, I'm making a sacrifice too. Bill. Uh, I think the appeal that's being made is constructed really well. It's contextual, just like Rick mentioned this morning. Paul talks about his brother Timothy, yes. brother in Christ, and he addresses a family unit in all likelihood. This yes, is, you're right. This is uh, Philemon and Archippus and Aphia, and they probably are family, at I, least right. in Christ, but probably yes. family. Yep. And I think that's important because what he's doing is calling our attention to the importance of unity. Yes. And yes. to the importance of even in family as things are messy. He's appealing right to the heart of their communal uh, unit there, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I love that. He sets the table for it. And, and Bill brought something out. Again, I, I, I know I've skated through it before, but I just really leaned in and studying this one. Didn't realize exactly what Bill said. Scholars the best tell us, as best as we can tell, this is written to a particular family. So Philemon, obviously, is the house church leader. Aphia is possibly scholars say his wife and and here's the interesting thing about the culture that they were living in often the wife in a fa in a wealthy family was the one in charge of the slaves you hear me so paul is he's addressing her as a fellow leader in the house who is going to have some say as to what he's going to ask him to do right so he draws her into it as well and archippus is possibly, probably, maybe his son. By the way, he is also a leader. Again, you got to piece some of these things together. So, you know, we'll kind of rock and roll a little bit more next week. But just putting the context is so important. Let me read for you the, um, what, the only other thing that we know from the Bible about this guy Archippus, who is likely, possibly, scholars tend to think, the son of Philemon. So this is written to a family. 
Uh, Colossians 4, verse 17 says, says this, tell, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. And the word there is the word we get deacon from. So it can be translated deacon or minister or service or whatever. Whatever's happening, again, don't make it too formal because it hadn't got big and formal yet. But he has some recognized semi-official ministry in that little house church. So Philemon is probably the, you know, we would call it today the campus pastor, <laughs> right? And his wife is the shepherdess <laughs> who helps shepherding this group and is managing things that are going on in that spiritual community. And then Archippus is, is like the associate minister. So I mean, you know, I'm, I'm roughly, I'm just kind of throwing that in there. But he's addressing them as a family. Isn't it powerful? You get books of the Bible written to Israel. And you get books of the Bible write, written to the whole city of Rome. You get Ephesians. It's like a circular letter to several churches. And in the Bible, the Holy Spirit inspired one book to be written to a family. Husband, wife, and a kid. But he also drops in. I think this is really, really important. And to the church that meets in your house. What does that tell us that something, just think about this for a moment. I could picture Philemon pulling Paul aside and saying, dude, why are we reading this in church? I mean, this is a letter to me. I'm taking your personal email, and you asked me to read it to the whole church. That'd be kind of interesting. I'm, you know, Bill might have to call me out on something, but I hope he's not going to read it to the whole church. Why? What does this tell us? Paul says this is a matter not just for you and your family, but for the church. So here's just a thought, but I'd love to hear other things on this. This is one other place where the Bible reminds us there is no such thing as an individual sin. Or, I want to flip it on the positive side, there's also no such thing as an individual virtue. The choices we make as followers of Jesus affect the entire body of Christ. The body of Christ, I've said it so many times, I'll say it again, the body of Christ is more than a metaphor for Paul. It is a spiritual, organic reality. So you can't bump your toe without the entire body feeling it. And Paul says you can't let the truth not be lived out in your relationship in one little family with one slave who runs away and it not affect the entire church. Isn't that powerful? I just think it's amazing. Paul writes these epic things about Jew and Gentile getting together, and he says the way you treat that person in your house affects the entire body of Christ. Do we feel that a little bit? Powerful. Thank you so much, Bill, for bringing that personal nature into it. Other things that jump out to you just in Paul's introduction is pretty powerful. I am my being a prisoner and yet Paul starts this letter out calling himself a prisoner and that would tend to stop me right there you know I don't know what I'm free in Christ I mean we sing that song all the time the freedom we have in Christ and Paul's calling himself a prisoner and I never think of myself that way Paul is never afraid to say my relationship with Jesus trumps what I'm claiming and you'll see him elsewhere in, you know, in the New Testament saying, yeah, I'm a citizen of Rome, and that's really cool, and it brings all sorts of benefits to it and freedoms that he could otherwise enjoy. But he said, I'm, I'm going to claim more that, that I'm enslaved to the benevolent Lord Jesus. Mike, yeah. Uh, lest, lest we think that Paul is saying something very unique and personally to himself, uh, you know, he really mentions this concept of, of being possessed by God in Titus. 
Yep. Chapter 2, uh, verse 14, he says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Mm. So, you know, Paul's message there is to us all. Yes. That, that his goal for each one of us individually is that he, that the Lord Jesus Christ would possess us. Yes. He would take ownership of us. Yeah. Uh, we, we know in other parts of the Bible that we, we, we hear that we're not our own, but we've been bought with a price. That's right. That's kind of slave language right there. That's right. This body is his body, not mine. That's beautifully so said, we're Mike. Not, we're not here to serve ourselves. We're not here to mm. be entertained. Yes. We're not here to have a good time. We're, we're here to, uh, uh, you know, put our hand to the plow and, yep. and be about his business. Amen. Well said. So beautifully said. I'll just drop in here also. One of the things that you notice Paul doing throughout, one of his favorite words in this little letter, but he says it in other places too, um, is the word fellow worker. You're my fellow worker. You're my partner in this ministry. Um, he does it here. Look down in verse 24. You just kind of skim down there. He mentions four other people, and Mark and Luke and was it Demas and some others that are, that are in that list. Um, he, I think, calls Archippus that and the other, and the other book. He's always drawing people into the team. Isn't that cool? He's not a lone ranger even though he's the apostle. He's drawing people in. And he's saying, we're all fellow workers. We're all partners in the ministry and the mission of God. And again, he's going to play on that when he gets to what he's asking them to do. My question here is, uh, there seems to be a parallel between this and Jonah, where somebody goes off on a frolic and detour of their own, and God turns it around and makes it good. Everything works out for his good for those that love the Lord. You take Onesimus who runs off. He didn't want to be a slave. You take Jonah who runs off. He didn't want to do what he wanted to do. And yet God turns it around and makes it work out for his glory. Is there, is there a parallel there? I don't know. No, I think that's beautifully said. One, one of the things that we find, again, one of the biggest uh, themes in the entire Bible is the theme of wilderness. So God will meet us when we run or wander. So I do think there's a connection. I would also just add in that I'd much rather hang out with Onesimus than Jonah, by the way, because we want to wrap everything up in a nice, neat bow in Jonah. Jonah does not wrap up in a nice, neat bow. He goes and preaches, and then he sulks, and God rebukes him, basically, and says, I care more about, the, you care more about a plant than you do a city. Onesimus, when he wanders, gets the gospel and comes back on fire. So, yeah, there's some parallels, and I'm just saying I would much rather have Onesimus hanging out with coffee than Jonah. That's just me. And I've been grumpy Jonah, too, but that's a great that's a great picture of it. A uh, couple more, and then we'll wrap up pretty quickly here. But um, I, I just want to look at it. I'm, I'm going to skip a verse here because I think the heart of this book is in verse 6. Other people may see it differently. So I, I want to hold that off, and we probably won't even get to it now until next week, which is no surprise for me. But I want to look at 4 uh, and 5 and then 7. And again, if all you have to describe Philemon and his leadership, this family and this little life group church are these verses. What do you notice about them? And by the way, we can also see something beautiful about the way Paul brings challenge to other people. It's kind of cool. We'll see it more next week as well. So I'm going to read this. Verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Skip down to verse 7. Your love, and this is y'all's love, your love has given me great joy 
and encouragement because you, brother, this one is singular, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Let me read that again. If this is all you had about Philemon and his house, church, and family, what would you notice about them? I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. What do you, what do you notice here? And again, we can learn something about the way his, you encourage him. Here. His reputation is, appears to be of encouragement and love. And it, in, 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 when you know people like that, you know them because of their actions. Yes. And, and that's when, you know, when people think about that person, they think, man, what a, what a loving person, encourager, taking care of people, yes. opening his home, that sort of thing. So that um, obviously his actions were, were preceding him. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Keith. There it is. There it is. There it is. Um, kind of like we heard this morning, the the walls, the barriers were broken down um, because he made sure that he asked for all of God's people. Yeah. So there were no distinctions because uh, we know the background of Onesimus and yeah. what he's going to be faced with. Yeah. Yeah. And they have this reputation of it. Again, think about how astounding this is in their culture where they don't have. Facebook and Snapchat and all that stuff. It, like Paul says, I heard about you. I heard about the way you love. I heard about your radical trust in Jesus. I'm trying to de-stained glass the word faith. I've heard about that. And I've heard about it so much that when I'm sitting in a jail cell for the gospel of Jesus, I'm encouraged and not discouraged because to borrow a phrase he says elsewhere, my labor was not in vain. Like I planted the seeds of the gospel and it's blowing up in your life. And Paul does this in Thessalonica and he'll say this in other places. I heard about you. I heard about your faith and love. Like think about this. The reputation of the church in, a, in an area matters. It matters. Now let me be quick to say, not in the sense of I'm going to water down what we do to make people in the culture happy, but Paul says, for those that are watching, the gospel not just to be told, but to be lived, it's powerful when the gospel is lived out so much that people can say, I heard about you. By the way, can I take a moment to just pastorally encourage you as a church? You know, because we've only been here five years, four and a half years or whatever, but I remember we first came here and then all the way up to last week, I mean, week before last, because we we're out of time, week before last, I think it was at the sheriff's office or somewhere else. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm a minister at, at Fourth Avenue Church Christ. And by the way, whenever I say this, I, I'm kind of, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, okay, are, are they going to hear the Church of Christ part and only have bad experiences and feel bad or in, in, in the whatever? But they were like, oh, you could see their face light up. Face lit up. Oh, you're that church that, you're that church. Like, they'd heard about you. They'd heard about the love. Now, here's what's cool. Listen. Paul's writing this letter not because everything is all right, because there's, there's a place in this family, in this church family's life that isn't fully living out the truth of the gospel yet, right? Right? Think about this. So what does Paul start with? He's about to bring a very strong challenge to that church and to that culture. Let me say this again. Don't rush past this because we're, you know, 
in many ways beyond this, many ways we're not in this culture. He's about to bring a really strong challenge. By the way, if Philemon will do what Paul asks him to do, the church is going to take shots for it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's going to be economic impacts for undercutting the institution of slavery. And if the church buys into the gospel in that place, the church is going to get attacked for it. Paul says, before I challenge you, I'm going to start by calling out the places in your life that I see the gospel flourishing. And what I'm going to ask you to do is not you're some evil person and you've got to start being good. I'm going to say, you're already following Jesus. Can you look for the places in your life where there are gaps, where there are blind spots, and I'm inviting you to follow Jesus more deeply? Isn't that cool? Right? So when we think about, and, and I, our discernment team is talking about this, we want to step more into the challenge of the gospel in this stage of our life. We want to step more meaningfully into discipleship. But every time we hear that, I want you to hear this first. That's coming from a place where the gospel is already living. And the gospel has already set us free. And the gospel is already being heard outside of these walls for the things that, the, that God has done and the Holy Spirit has done in this church for decades now Paul says, on top of that, can we pray? Now here's where you got to have confidence in who you are in Jesus to say, God, all right, where are the blind spots? Where are the places? David, can you show me the places that I don't know in my heart and life that I still need to surrender to you? Isn't that great? Before Paul challenges him, he says, I'm going to build on the life that exists there. I'm not just going to be this wagging finger kind of leader that's going to point out all the places you've got to blow it. And I'm telling you, this letter, this whole letter is a masterpiece of how you encourage and challenge another brother or sister in Christ. Not just as a leader, all of us are leaders in our influence. Does that make sense? And so we saw one example of it here. We're going to see it unpack even more. Paul says, I've heard of you, I've heard of you, I've heard of you. And the way you're living out the gospel has literally refreshed my heart and life. That's what I'm praying for for our church family. In fact, I'll just lead into a prayer now. Father God, I love being a part of this church family. I can only imagine what letter your Holy Spirit would write to this church. What would you say? I've heard about the ways you have torn down walls. Maybe your Holy Spirit would say today, I heard about a step that you took just to, just to invite that one more brick on the wall to come down. Maybe the Holy Spirit would say, I've heard about people who are addicted and enslaved in all sorts of ways, who have run away but then came and found hope and faith and life in this place. Maybe the Holy Spirit would say, I, I've heard about how every person has the opportunity to share their gifts in the place. So many things you have done, Holy Spirit, in this place. I pray that on the strength of that, that then we would then have the courage to come and say, now where do we need to follow you next as disciples? Where are the places you want to challenge us and convict us and to give us boldness to stand up for truth when other people wouldn't? And even be willing to maybe take some shots in the culture because we're willing to stand for the truth of Jesus. Father, I trust this letter is not just a 2,000-year-old letter, but it's also the Holy Spirit speaking to all of us right now today. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're asking you, would you speak that life, that conviction, that hope, and challenge to us as a church? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Love you all so much.